The college football playoffs and Heisman finalists are set. The NCAA transfer portal is open for football players. And Virginia and Virginia Tech's men's and women's basketball teams are all off to fast starts to their seasons. We'll talk about all that and more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome to episode 97 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and joining me as always, my co-host, the 14-time sports writer of the year, and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, we had a little hiatus here, but uh, but we're back, and it's good to talk to you. Good morning. I guess we could have just done this at JPJ pregame tonight, right? We, we really could. We've got James Madison coming to Charlottesville tonight. We'll both be in the house for that game. And uh, I was there a year ago in Harrisonburg when uh, JMU beat UVA on their home court, and, and that was that was quite a night in Harrisonburg, and certainly uh, they've gone on to have some some big nights and big days there with with what their football program did this year, David. But uh, this Virginia basketball team knocking them off that might be a bit of a, a, a tall challenge, huh? I would think so. Uh, you know, the Dukes played a respectable game, I guess, against North Carolina down in Chapel Hill or earlier th- th- this season. Uh, but they come in, what, 7-2 and two and the highest scoring team in the country. But I'm guessing they have not seen a defense quite as stingy as the Cavaliers. Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting. We were we were both in, in Charlotte for ACC basketball media days, and so much of the narrative and the talk was about, you know, just getting off to a better start, getting off to a better start than the league did uh, a year ago when they really struggled in their non-conference games. And it, the results have been mixed, but if you're Virginia, you've certainly done your portion of, of carrying the weight here early on. It couldn't have gone any better, right? I mean, here the Cavaliers sit number three in the country, undefeated, and with three signature wins, none of them, by the way, at home. I mean, you beat Baylor and Illinois and in Vegas and then go to Ann Arbor and win in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Uh, that's some strong stuff now. Yeah, I was out there in Las Vegas with this team and, and- – was incredibly impressed. I thought they would play well. I thought they would be competitive. I certainly thought they, they could win uh, a game, maybe two out there. Uh, but the fashion in which they did, uh, mm-hmm. the, the domination in the second half, uh, the big runs, uh, there were times, certainly against Baylor, at the start of that second half against Baylor, that you thought, hey, I, I'm looking at a Final Four level team. And uh, really nothing that, that's happened since has kind of changed that. I, I think you know, people had high expectations for this Virginia team, but I think after Vegas, the ceiling has gone up a bit. I would think so. That's just kind of how fans and we in the media, you know, it's it's that immediacy. You know, you you know what you just saw, and when when a team can uh, go out there and and not only you know what was it a thirty to five run that they yeah. put on Baylor, but then the the toughness, just the raw grit that they showed against. Illinois and Michigan, which is what you're going to need, right, to to beat Big Ten opponents. And I just think this team has a little, maybe a lot more of an edge than last season's squad. They're older. They're stronger. They're more experienced. 
Yeah, and those those were the things that, you know that they were supposed to be right. They they talked about how much they brought back, and then then Ben Vanderplas, who new to them but has certainly played a a ton of college basketball in, in his time at Ohio, including an NCAA tournament game against Virginia. Uh, so this is supposed to be a team that that maybe has a little more of that that grit, a little more of that that moxie. Um, Kihei Clark has played what nineteen years of college basketball. <laughs> um, I mean, he's just been there forever, and and, and certainly, um, I mean, he, that guy is the definition, right, of battle tested. Uh, you know, they've been outscoring teams in the second half. They've been finishing games. They have an ACC win under their belt now, having beat you know Florida State, which uh, is a whole other story. The problems that they're having and. Uh, things only got worse there with the injury to, to Cameron Fletcher, and uh, who will be out for the year. So Leonard Hamilton's team is uh, very shorthanded and struggling. But you're seeing things from Virginia in terms of uh, a level of connected defense that they have to have to be great under Tony Bennett, a more proficient offense. I think they're one of only two teams in the ACC that rank in the top six in both scoring and defense. Uh, two or three, Clemson and Virginia Tech might both join them as well. Uh, so you're seeing... Uh, a functionality on both ends of the court uh, that certainly bodes well for what we anticipate will be a team that, that gets better as the year goes on. Mike, I'm sitting here looking at the Ken Palm rankings. Cavaliers are number eight in the country in offensive efficiency. Defensive efficiency, number 20, which is actually low for them, but still very good. And only twice previously has Virginia been more efficient offensively than defensively in the Bennett era. One was the COVID year when the NCAA tournament was canceled. The other was 2019 when they won the national championship. And th- th- there will be some some hiccups as there always are for, for teams in a, in a long college basketball season. But uh, they have certainly started off. Uh, at, and as you mentioned, the, the, the intent was, in contrast to last season, let's get off to a quick start and mission accomplished there. Well, speaking of quick starts... A team that I don't know that any of us paid any attention to because of just how dismal, frankly, they, they had been in recent years. The women's team at UVA. Mm-hmm. And under a new coach, Coach Mox brought in a lot of energy, a lot of excitement. How quickly would that translate to the court? Well, David, they're they're 10-0. 10-0. They've already won a conference game. Uh, they're winning big. They're winning by huge point totals. They're fun to watch. They're deep. They're running the floor. Uh, they've got the hometown hero in Sam Brunel, the transfer from that? Notre Dame back. Yes. Uh, they've got a couple wins already right over uh, over Big Ten opponents because they had the both Penn, Penn State, State and Minnesota. Yeah, this looks like, and, and again, but this looks like the real deal, especially when you factor in. Not that that Wake is great, but you know, this team has not been competitive in the ACC. They beat Wake Forest by twenty in the ACC opener. Uh, there's some energy here, uh, basketball wise, on the women's side of things as well. For the first time in a long time, and it it was Mike what Coach Mox in, in, inherited, just in terms of of the program. I don't think anyone would have envisioned that Tina Thompson would be so in over her head when it came to to leading a, a major Division One program. We're talking about a Hall of Fame player who had served in an apprenticeship, if you will, as an assistant coach at Texas, which is 
big time women's college basketball. But for many, many reasons, it did not translate when she became the head coach at UVA. And it was it, it was jarring for, for someone as, as old as I who remembers Debbie Ryan's program in its prime and consecutive final fours. And, and they just, they were at the top of the ACC, if not number one, then number two for years upon years. And to think that a program with Virginia's resources and infrastructure and you know, there's JPJ, I mean, and a, and a practice facility. There is absolutely no reason, none, for UVA women's basketball not to be nationally prominent. Yeah, and nationally prominent, and they were not within uh, a sight of that in the Correct. Thompson years. And and the thing that happened that, that was probably the most discouraging for, for Virginia's you know administration and fans is they slipped from being bad to being so bad that they weren't really even being criticized. They were being largely ignored. Um, And I think that's the worst situation you can be in, right? To just be so irrelevant, uh, to be so irrelevant that that nobody's even paying attention to you. Uh, Thompson's first year, she won 12 games. She was 12 and 19. Her second year, she was 13 and 17. Won eight games in the conference. And you kind of thought like, okay, maybe maybe there's getting some footing. Then the next year, they were... 0-5 0-5 before they bagged the season. That was the COVID year. COVID year. They had a lot of issues, uh, COVID-related, non-COVID-related injuries, uh, people leaving the program. And then they came out last season, David. <laughs> they were 5-22. and 22. They won yeah. two ACC games, and you kind of just realized this thing's fallen off the rails completely. It, yeah. it, it needs to be – I thought it needed to be rebuilt. Coach Mox is making me think maybe it just needed to be jump-started. Good point. And, you know, an influx of new talent, an influx of, you know, just a different voice leading the program. You know, it's remarkable how quickly things can turn now in college sports in large measure because of the transfer port. Yeah, which we're going to get into at some length here later (laughs) in today's show. But yeah, you can absolutely turn things around in a hurry. You can also build things slowly and steadily. I'd argue that's a little bit more the way that Kenny Brooks has done it with Virginia Tech's women. UVA is up to number 25 in the net ranking on the women's side. Virginia Tech's up to number eight. And David, I know it's not the Pat Summit juggernaut, but Kenny Brooks took Virginia Tech to Tennessee, to Knoxville, and beat the Volunteers this weekend. Oh, that was a huge moment for his program. Quite the Sunday for (laughs) Virginia Tech men's and women's basketball to to win at Thompson Bowling uh, for for the women, and then just a couple hours later for the men at Castle to beat Carolina. Those Those are two of the most, if not the most, iconic brands in men's and women's college basketball, Carolina. And, and Tennessee. And let's not forget, yes, t- Tennessee is struggling at four and five. And yes, Carolina is struggling at five and four. But Carolina played in the national final last season and Tennessee was in the Sweet 16. So it's it's not like these programs are you know on a downward trajectory. The, you are 100% right. That's a big win for Kenny Brooks in his program. And one, frankly, that's not surprising, given as well as they played last year, given who they have 
back this season. I mean, Liz Kitley is the reigning ACC Player of the Year. Georgia Amore just you know had a triple double, a first in program history against Nebraska in, in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. Now he he's got some. He's got some talent in that program. I'm glad you mentioned that triple-double because it gave me my favorite moment on social media. I don't know if you saw this. Yes. Hunter Couture, the guard from the men's team, uh, tweeted praising uh, Georgia Moore saying, I want to be like her after the triple-double. And then she tweeted back to him, I watch film of you (laughs) to to get better. And I thought that was such a a great exchange between obviously two athletes at the same school that have a ton of respect for each other, uh, but also two really, really good college basketball players. Yeah, it, it, it was really cool. And, uh, and you know, the, the programs, they, they share a building. They, they see one another in, in the training room. I was talking to a couple of the men's players after the Carolina game, and I asked them, I said, do you follow the, the women's team? And they're like, oh, of course we do. And, you know, we go to their games, and, and Justin Mutz said, look, they have all the pieces. They are scary, and I wouldn't want to play them. <laughs> Which I think that that might be fun. I don't know what uh, the NCAA guidelines say about that. Maybe it'd have to happen after the season, uh, or maybe you mix up the teams, right? Yes. You, you go, oh, that would be wild. Wouldn't little... that be fun? And mm-hmm. um, or maybe you do some kind of challenge cup with UVA because, like I said, their men and women are both rolling, and uh, it's, it's just going to be a really fun year, I think, around the Commonwealth uh, for basketball. You mentioned that JMU is certainly a quality team again, and um, just going to be a lot of fun to watch. And you mentioned you know Hunter Couture right there, and I thought he was the guy that really got them off to a great start in the win over Carolina Sunday. You and I were both there in Castle for that. And then it was Justin Mutz, just having a Justin Mutz game, kind of doing a little of everything, but a ton of scoring. I was just saying a lot of scoring. A lot of scoring. And he's the one who finished them off. But I came away, and and again, Armando Baycott didn't play in this game. He had a bruised shoulder. Uh, Carolina certainly struggling. But Mike Young made the point, you know, R.J. Davis, Caleb Love, those guys have won a lot of college basketball games. They still got some players over there. Uh, I came away really impressed with Virginia Tech, and and as we kind of mentioned earlier with UVA, maybe maybe have a higher thought of what the ceiling could be for Mike Young's team this year. Yeah, they, this was by far Mike their biggest test. Mm-hmm. You know, they 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 came in, you know, they they beaten um, Minnesota in, in in the Big Ten Challenge. You know they uh, they played in in the MTE where they lost to, in the final to the College of Charleston, which is a quality mid major, and it was on Charleston's home court. Uh, but this was Carolina, and the Tar Heel struggles aside, uh, this was one, especially at home in the ACC opener, uh, that the Hokies needed to have if 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 they were going to get off to the start that they envisioned and and sure enough you know they were up huge what was as by as many as 18 if if memory serves in the second half and then it got squirrely uh, but they made plays d- down the stretch um, so it it's a really good team I think right now Virginia sits atop the pecking order and then you've got Virginia Tech Duke Carolina Miami. I think those four are pretty much interchangeable. And after that, I think there's a pretty significant drop-off in the ACC. Yeah, I think that's fair based on what we've seen you mm-hmm. know, so far on the court. Now, I, I still, and time may prove me wrong, I still have very high hopes uh, for Mike Bray's Notre Dame team. Uh, I think with Goodwin and, and Lashewski, like I think they're they're going to, I feel like they've got to be good. 
Um, but I think you're right in terms of how it separated itself, at least to this point, um, what we've seen on the floor. My, Miami, to me, and certainly we knew that they, they brought in, you know, Nigel Pack and, and they had some, they, they've been the surprise to me. Um, you know, they've been better than I thought. Uh, and I think Clemson, as we see that PJ Hall is healthy yes. and, and playing well, and they are playing really good defense. Um, I think they're, they're in, in that next group. I kind of like Notre Dame and Clemson. Um, but you know, we'll see. We've got a, got a lot of. It feels like we've played a ton of basketball already with some of these big matchups. But there is a lot of basketball left as well. Big week last week for Brad Brownell's crew at Clemson to to win that ACC Big Ten Challenge game against Penn State in double overtime, mm-hmm. like they did when they really kicked it away at the end of regulation, <laughs> and and missed some free throws, but then steadied the ship a little bit there in the second overtime and, and PJ Hall was terrific. You know, they're still bringing him along gradually. Yeah. I don't think he started a game yet and he's not playing huge, huge minutes, but wow, it looks like he's rounding into form. And then you've got Chase Hunter and Hunter Tyson. I get my hunters mixed up at, at Clemson. You'll have to excuse me, but they're both playing really well and they just destroyed wake forest in the second half last weekend shot it shot 70 percent after intermission and and ran away with it which really surprised me because steve forbes's team had had been playing well Mm -hmm. uh, with, with those transfers and you you mentioned miami and and nigel pack and and the transfers well the other day sunday sunday morning I'm in the hotel in Blacksburg, and I happen to run in to former Miami assistant, now the head coach at George Washington, Chris Caputo, in the exercise room. The Colonials were in town to play Radford that afternoon. And I've known Chris for a while, so we start yucking it up. And we were both talking about the Arkansas State transfer that Miami got Norchant or mayor, I think is how you pronounce his name. And Mike, he is a double, double machine. And he, and um, Caputo made an interesting comparison. He compared him to Jaden Gardner and just that rugged 6'6", 6'7", guy who can get you a bucket when you need it and will rebound and grind and just that kind of player who you really want. And he's been a real find for Jim Laranick. Yeah, so we so we both agree with the pieces that they added at Miami. Uh, they look like they're built to be the real deal. Virginia, Virginia Tech, and Duke seem to be the real deal. We talked about some of the, the I don't know, outside that group, Clemson and, and, and Notre Dame teams that could still really get into things. How about since we, <laughs> I Ooh. guess we have to, <laughs> touch on the bottom where Florida State, David, is one and nine. Obviously, they have the drama with Baba Miller being ruled ineligible over some travel benefits that, that he paid back, but the NCAA still sat him for the first half of the season. And then Louisville, David, where new coach Kenny Payne, we're a month in, and he's still looking for his first win. They're 0-8. Uh, th- those are two dreadful starts for Florida State and Louisville. Historically dreadful. A friend of mine emailed me a stat the other day. Let me call it up. I think I have it right here. I do. Uh, only two teams in ACC history have started one and nine. Clemson in 54-55 and Virginia in 
62. If Louisville beats Florida State next Saturday, there will be two one and nine teams in this league simultaneously. It's pretty, pretty bad stuff. Yeah. And, 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 and to me, the Louisville one, and I don't think anyone thought the Cardinals were going to be good. Right. But Mike, that's a recent national champion with all the resources you could ever want at a school that worships men's basketball. And they stink. And to me, that's really, really jarred. Yeah. And, and you know, the schedule has not been the easiest. No. Going, for, going to Hawaii was not a good idea. This was not the team for it. And the teams <laughs> they lost to there, I, I think it was Arkansas, Texas Tech, and Cincinnati, I believe, were the three they lost to in Maui. Um, so those are three quality opponents. Would you like to at least get one of them? Sure, but it's understandable. They got Maryland in the ACC Big Ten Challenge. I think Maryland looks like a pretty solid team this year. Seems like Kevin Willard has that thing going right. Unbeaten Maryland. And if I'm remembering correct, and, and I hope I'm I'm not wrong, and we have to go back and edit this out of the podcast, but <laughs> I, I think their first three losses were yeah. all one-point losses. They were all at home. Yes, they I were. I think they were all one-point losses, and it started with Bellarmine, a team that should have been in the NCAA tournament last year, but the NCAA screwed them over. So it wasn't as horrible a start, I guess. I mean, certainly you should be 3-0 and or 2-1. and I think App State was second or third in that list. Uh, you'd like to be 3-0 and or 2-1 and there. They were one-point games. They were d- decent enough opponents, and then you just get buried in Hawaii, and it just feels like they've maybe dug themselves a hole that that kind of it gets away from you a little bit. I guess is my point. Well, and you know, their their recent outings have been dreadful. Yeah, I mean, they were down by thirty something to Miami the other day in the second half at home, by the way, and lost by twenty seven. They lost by twenty five at home to Maryland in in the Big Ten Challenge. They lost by 32 to Texas Tech in Maui. They lost by 26 to Arkansas in Maui and by 19 to Cincinnati. (laughs) So maybe I should be less impressed with those one-point games that they just couldn't pull out uh, and more concerned about just getting buried uh, in the subsequent games. It it could be certainly a, a long a long year for Louisville and uh, a school that, you know, we touched on it though. You can be dreadful one year and pretty damn good the next year because of the transfer portal. You talked about the additions at Miami, what they've done to transform uh, that roster that would have been shaky this year without them. And David, Monday was the first day of the window being open for undergraduate football players to put their name in the portal. And by day's end from Monday at 6 a.m., Till Monday at 5 p.m., 74 ACC football players had put their name into the portal in that one day. By the end of the day, and this is going back, some guys had gone in the week before, 1,000 FBS players, mm-hmm. 1,000 FBS players had their name in the NCAA transfer portal by close of business Monday. You could say what you want, and you and I are both on the side of, of giving athletes you know, rights and giving athletes their due, what they earn and, and the freedom um, to move around and those kind of things. But who boy, I, I don't know if, I don't know if this model is, you know, to use the word everybody, I don't know if this model is sustainable. It's not. I can tell you right now that it's not sustainable. And at some point, my water has to find its level and there has to be lessons learned and some hard lessons 
where eventually athletes and perhaps more important, those who purport to have those athletes' best interests at heart, their families, their handlers, whomever, will come to realize that just moving every year is not the way to go. And you're eventually not going to have a landing spot. And then what happens? Um, you know, how many of these young people are entering the portal for, I don't want to say legitimate, but for understandable reasons where you just, it's not a fit. You don't like the scheme. You, you don't like your playing time. It's a bad academic fit, socially, whatever. And how many are out there because somebody or somebody's are in their ear telling them, whispering, come here and you'll get more NIL. And how many of those promises are realized? How many of them are broken? So it's not just the transfer portal. It's the transfer portal and NIL. and, And it's all come together simultaneously to create this, you know, the, the numbers are crazy. I mean, here, here's another stat that, that a friend shared last night of, yes, as of the close of business yesterday, there were 64 Division I quarterbacks with a combined 2,500 starts <laughs> in the portal. And oh, by the way, there's like six of them from the ACC, right? Yep. Brennan. Jeff Sims, Devin Leary, Phil, Jer- Phil Jerkovic, DJ Uyunglele, Keaton Slovis. It's, it's crazy. It's wild. And just in that group, and, and you don't know, I mean, p- part of this is you're right about the NIL, especially at the quarterback position. If you're a team that doesn't have a starting quarterback, and I don't know how the communication works because there are supposed to be limits on this, but somebody's telling your NIL people, your booster, whoever it is that can make these offers, we need a quarterback. And it makes sense if you're the quarterbacks as a group to kind of go out there and, and see what you're worth. Now, within those names you just gave, there's a lot of different stories, right? I mean, Brennan Armstrong and the struggle in transitioning to a new coaching staff, an mm-hmm. offense that didn't really fit him, uh, just a miserable season by all accounts, certainly the tragedy at the end. And Brennan's story has a lot too why he might want to go somewhere else for his final year. Phil Dracovic, who you mentioned. Okay, he's already, I believe he's already committed to Pittsburgh. Right, Re- That's reuniting close to home, with his offensive coordinator. Reuniting with Signetti, uh, yep. his offensive coordinator who he had success with. So even within the ACC group, there are guys that you say, okay, you know, lots of different stories, lots of different reasons. I think things are going to work out just fine for the big names in the transfer portal. I think they usually do whether it's cashing in on money, whether it's getting to a team that can win a national title, whether it's going somewhere you're going to fit in the offense and have a great year. The guys I worry about are the guys who put their name in the portal because they think there's something better for them out there. They weren't necessarily unhappy at their old school, but maybe they were a starter who thinks they could be a key player on a national title contender. Maybe somebody's telling them, hey, you're better than where you are. Or they think there's money out there. Hey, you don't might not have an NFL future, but you can cash in for a one year in college. And we've seen some really good journalism, some really good reporting on just how many guys don't find a landing spot, period. Mm-hmm. They just end their college career or derail. You know, Maybe they go down and, and play in a small school close to home, but they, they just derail their career. They give up a, a degree, some of them, because a lot of these guys are undergraduate. Yeah, They give up a degree from 
a, a major university that could really have, have helped them down the line. And, and those are the cautionary tales that I think you're right. Five, 10 years down the line, things will have ironed out in rules and regulations. Yes, but just in people's mindset, j- just in yeah. people's approach to it. I think we've started to see it in the NBA where, you know, you used to have 260 guys declare for the NBA draft and the NBA drafts only two rounds long, <laughs> right? And second round picks aren't guaranteed anything. Yeah. So, so it started to work itself out where people realized, yeah, maybe I'm confident that I'm good enough, but where do I fit in this 200 names? Uh, most of whom are not going to get picked. I do think things will sort themselves out. I worry this year, next year, the year after, what happens to these some of these kids who whoever's in their ear or whatever they're thinking, they don't find landing spots. Yeah, it's it's absolutely a a serious concern and reality because it it's going to happen, and you know a lot of those stories won't be told, but you just hope that somehow. They are filtered down uh, to to younger incoming athletes, and that they are just less inclined to to jump at the first sign at the first sign of adversity. Yeah, and here is the complication for this. When I went to do my Heisman ballot yesterday. And, and I know you, you, you vote as well and, and you go through and all the guys who are worthy and had great years. A couple of the guys, a lot of the guys I looked at, Caleb Williams at USC, Hendon Hooker at Tennessee, mm-hmm. Michael Penix at Washington. Uh, what do they all have in common? Yeah, they're all transfers and they're all transfers from legitimate programs, right? They're not guys who were at the FCS level and got a chance. I mean, these are guys who left good established programs where they had played well at times, had success at times. They went somewhere else and now they're of the Heisman caliber and, and uh, Hooker and Penix didn't end up being uh, finalists for the award. They're not going to be in New York, but certainly they had Heisman caliber seasons. Uh, They were national stories. I think that's hard for other people to see that level of how well it can go. Mm-hmm. And then you weigh that with with all the things we just talked about. Uh, it's an interesting situation right now because some people are going in the portal and they're coming out the other side with robes and scepters and crowns on their heads. Joe Burrow, yeah, and so and the stories are going to go on and on because the, and and to your point, they're going to be the ones we hear about more. Yeah, right. We're not going to write. 40 inches or, or devote a lot of time on the podcast to the guy who was a backup defensive end at, at Virginia Tech or UVA, thought he could go somewhere better, didn't find a roster spot, and, and is pushing carts at the Kroger now. Like, that's not, it's not going to be front page news. But Hendon Hooker leaving Virginia Tech, taking Tennessee to, to the top of college football, being a Heisman candidate. That story is going to be told, and 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 again, it, that is hard, and it kind of goes back a little bit to what we said with you know Ben Vanderplas and that recruitment, and uh, do you have the maturity to to look at what's important, or do you get swept up in all the bells and whistles? Yep, absolutely, and you know, regardless of of reasons, you know, both the Cavaliers and the Hokies, as, as you would have expected, you know, took some hits yesterday. You know, Caleb Smith gone from Virginia Tech. He was their best offensive player. Fentrell Cypress, an all-ACC corner for Virginia. Uh, those are going to be difficult players to replace. And gee, where are they going to look? How are they going to replace them? <laughs> Through the portal. 
That's, I mean, that's the crazy part of, of all of this is, and it's how I ended my article on, on the portal stuff yesterday was, hey, at least you know there, there are going to be plenty of options out there. <laughs> you know, Can you get the right guys to your school? Can you get the right pieces in place? How will they fit with your coaches, with your scheme? But uh, you know, certainly it's, uh, I don't know, if you're, if you're into food, sometimes you go to a, a really good restaurant and the menu's tiny, right? There's four entrees, there's three appetizers, and sometimes you go to the Cheesecake Factory <laughs> and, and that menu when it's sitting on your lap kind of leaves an indentation on, on your thighs because <laughs> of how much they've got in the menu. Uh, the portal feels like the Cheesecake Factory menu right now. Uh, th- there is something for everyone. There are plenty of options. Uh, but in, in the end, do you make the right choices? Do you do you have a good meal uh, or, or do you find yourself taking the field next year, essentially starving because you're still hungry for what you're missing in your roster? Can you imagine being a coaching staff trying to scout the portal? It's insane. And, 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 and figure out who who might fit who might be interested i mean there's i can't, i can't imagine how daunting that is there, like i said there are over a thousand at this point now over a thousand fbs players that's not even counting guys from the fcs level who we've seen move up and be successful yes there are over a thousand fbs players in the portal are you supposed to research all of them, especially if you're a team like Virginia or Virginia Tech, where your roster is full of holes, right? Okay, it's, it's one thing if you're USC or you're Oklahoma, you're looking for a certain piece, right? right? Mm-hmm. And it's okay, who are the best receivers? Who are the best man-to-man cover corners? But if you are a program that is in a bad spot and you're trying to rebuild your roster through the portal, can you scout them all? And it's why I think what you're going to see, and, and this is my speculation, I think you're going to see a very heavy... Um, statistic or situation of guys signing with schools who had recruited them heavily originally, right? You wanted this kid, but he went somewhere else. Have you kept up um, any relationship there, you know, with the family or what? I think you're going to see a lot of that. I remember when I started my career, I covered a basketball coach. He was coaching D3. He had been a D1 assistant. And he said one of the things he learned as a D1 assistant was always keep those lines of communication open. Right, because if he was recruiting a kid, he was at a low major, D1, then a a very good D3 school. If you're recruiting those kids and they end up going mid-major or or high Division I, chances are there's a good odd they're going to wash out there. It's not going to work out. And then they land at the level where you thought they belonged all along. You keep that relationship. So I think you're going to see a lot of, because one of the things that we noticed yesterday, a lot of names in the portal were very familiar, had been recruited by Virginia, Virginia Tech. A lot of them were Virginia kids who went out of state. I, North Carolina's got a pair of defensive backs. I know Cameron Kelly committed and decommitted everywhere, but Cameron Kelly, Tony, Tony Grimes, Grimes, right? Two very talented 757 guys that both UVA and Tech looked at. To me, as you recruit now, those are the connections that, that get you through the portal. I think about Chris Marv being at Florida State and some of the defensive players at Florida State that are in the portal. Does he have that connection with them? And mm-hmm. uh, Because to your point, yeah, you can't know a thousand FBS, however many FCS guys have made themselves. You can't know a little something about all of them. No. Oh, heavens no. And then you've got to vet them. Right. You know, why are they leaving? What are they looking for? It's... Yeah, it, it certainly has added another level to, to, the, to this coaching challenge. And I always think about, you know, Mickey Matthews when he was the coach at James Madison and coached them to the, to the national title in 2004 there at the then 1AA level, they called it. But I remember him talking to me. They, they had a transfer quarterback named Justin Riscotti who led them to the national title. And I remember him saying, you know, you got to be so careful when you're taking transfers 
that you're not just taking somebody else's recruiting mistake off their hands. Yeah. Right. Just because somebody was at an FBS program or a power five program, you can't just be awed by that and say, okay, well, they were at Ohio state. They were at North Carolina, whoever it is. It's, oh, they were there. So they'll be good here. Uh, you know, down a level. You can't do that. You can't play that game. Maybe they made a mistake at Ohio State. Maybe they made a mistake at North Carolina, at Oklahoma, at USC, whoever it is. Don't you go burn a scholarship? Because an interesting thing that I found out during all of this from a friend who works in compliance: if you take a player out of the portal, if you're an FBS program and you take a player out of the portal, you are responsible for their scholarship. It counts against you for the remainder of their eligibility, regardless of what happens. If they join your program and enroll and it doesn't work out and they leave and they've still got two more years, they count against your scholarship count because you took them out of the portal. That's a kind of wrinkle that really has to weigh on a coach, right? You don't want to take a flyer on a kid who's got three years who quits your program after the spring or after one season and now you're down a scholarship because the NCAA is trying to curb as best it can uh, the madness that is the transfer portal. And that's what's going to leave a lot of these young people out in the cold. Mm-hmm. You don't want to take that chance. Mm-hmm. This, the price is too steep. Uh, but again, like I said, what's the plus side? Caleb Williams, a Heisman finalist, was in the national title hunt. Uh, Hendon Hooker, Michael Penix, teams nationally ranked, and, and we're getting Heisman chat. Uh, so th- there is... The high end, there is the low end, and, and things are going to have to work themselves out. David, before we get out of here, what, what did you make of, and again, we're, we're not allowed to reveal who we voted for, who was on our Heisman ballot, but what did you make of the finalists, uh, the right group, anybody to you that should have been in New York that's not there? Hendon Hooker. Yeah. Really, really, and you know, part of it is because I always found him to be an engaging young man at, at Virginia Tech, and but I, I thought he had that kind of season uh I, you know he, he got hurt there at the end obviously but uh he was he was really really exceptional this year as he as he was a year ago at at tennessee i think caleb williams is still going to win i think max duggan will be second um i i have no feel for for who might be third yeah, I thought Williams and Stroud, just because of how high up on the uh, kind of the pedestal they had been all year, mm-hmm. I thought they were going to be in the finalist group. Yeah. And then I thought it was really hard to separate uh, Max Duggan at TCU, Stetson Bennett at Georgia, who kind of gets some bump for being undefeated, yeah. uh, Hendon Hooker, and I keep mentioning Michael Penix at Washington. I, I thought it was really hard to separate those four. I mean, and to me, they're not that far behind Williams and Stroud in terms of uh, the national notoriety they, they got. Um, I'm always, and maybe this is the one area where I fall in the participation trophy category, but, and we'll, we'll find out the voting totals. It just felt like certainly Hooker could have been in that New York group. Uh, and we'll see what the gap was and, and how they made that decision. But um, it's a special moment to go to New York as a finalist. Um, I think there's a real value and, and moment to cherish in that. So I just I feel like every year I wish one or two more guys was was headed to New York, even if they weren't close enough in the voting as ultimately the decisions are made. Yeah, I, I remember Michael Vick being in in New York uh, there in in 1999 when when he was a finalist. I think Ron Dane was was the winner, the Wisconsin running back. Nobody thought. Michael was going to win and Michael didn't think he was going to win, <laughs> but man was, you know, he just, he loved it and it turned out to be a precursor because a year later he was in New York 
for the NFL draft as as the number one pick. But no, it's it's an indelible experience that they'll <clears throat> that they'll always remember whether they got the hardware or not. Yeah, and you're probably right too that our knowledge of relationship with Hendon Hooker <laughs> probably played into sure. to wanting a little bit better for him, right? Just because uh, yeah, he had such a, an odd ending to his time at Virginia Tech, but he mm-hmm. had, had showed so much promise. Um, and then there's a great example of a kid who it was not working out for in Blacksburg and boy, did it work out for him in Knoxville. Well, I'm glad it worked out for us to get together and podcast again. We're going to try to get back on a weekly schedule now that basketball is fully up and running. We'll have plenty to talk about with bowl games and college football playoffs, although it doesn't involve any of of our locals here. Thank Hmm. you for listening. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times-Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer and yours truly. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next week, the national title. And I remember him saying, you know, you got to be so careful when you're taking transfers that you're not just taking somebody else's recruiting mistake off their hands. Yeah. Right. Just because somebody was at in FBS program or a power five program, you can't just be awed by that and say, okay, well, they were at Ohio state. They were at North Carolina, whoever it is. And so they were there. So they'll be good here. Uh, you know, down a level. You can't do that. You can't play that game. Maybe they made a mistake at Ohio State. Maybe they made a mistake at North Carolina, at Oklahoma, at USC, whoever it is. Don't you go burn a scholarship? Because an interesting thing that I found out during all of this from a friend who works in compliance: if you take a player out of the portal, if you're an FBS program and you take a player out of the portal, you are responsible for their scholarship. It counts against you for the remainder of their eligibility, regardless of what happens. If they join your program and enroll and it doesn't work out and they leave and they've still got two more years, they count against your scholarship count because you took them out of the portal. That's a kind of wrinkle that really has to weigh on a coach, right? You don't want to take a flyer on a kid who's got three years who quits your program after the spring or after one season and now you're down a scholarship because the NCAA is trying to curb as best it can uh, the madness that is the transfer portal. And that's what's going to leave a lot of these young people out in the cold. Mm-hmm. You don't want to take that chance. Mm-hmm. The, the price is too steep. Uh, but again, like I said, what's the plus side? Caleb Williams, a Heisman finalist, was in the national title hunt. Uh, Hendon Hooker, Michael Penix, teams nationally ranked, and, and we're getting Heisman chat. Uh, so th- there is... The high end, there is the low end, and, and things are going to have to work themselves out. David, before we get out of here, what, what did you make of, and again, we're, we're not allowed to reveal who we voted for, who was on our Heisman ballot, but what did you make of the finalists, uh, the right group, anybody to you that should have been in New York that's not there? Hendon Hooker. Yeah. Really, really, and you know, part of it is because I always found it to be an, an engaging young man at, at Virginia Tech, and but I, I thought he had that kind of season. I, you know, he, he got hurt there at the end, obviously, 
but uh, he was he was really really exceptional this year as he as he was a year ago at at Tennessee. I think Caleb Williams is still going to win. I think Max Duggan will be second. Uh, I, I have no feel for for who might be third. Yeah, I thought Williams and Stroud just because of how high up on the uh, kind of the pedestal they had been all year. Mm-hmm. I thought they were going to be in the finalist group. Yeah. And then I thought it was really hard to separate uh, Max Duggan at TCU, Stetson Bennett at Georgia, who kind of gets some bump for being undefeated, yeah. uh, Hendon Hooker, and I keep mentioning Michael Penix at Washington. I, I thought it was really hard to separate those four. I mean, and to me, they're not that far behind Williams and Stroud in terms of uh, the national notoriety they, they got. Um I'm always, and maybe this is the one area where I fall in the participation trophy category, but, and we'll, we'll find out the voting totals. It just felt like certainly Hooker could have been in that New York group. Um, and we'll see what the gap was and, and how they made that decision. But um, it's a special moment to go to New York as a finalist. Um, I think there's a real value and, and moment to cherish in that. So I just, I feel like every year I wish one or two more guys was, was headed to New York, even if they weren't close enough in the voting as ultimately decisions are made. Yeah. I, I remember Michael Vick being in, in New York, uh, there in, in 1999 when, when he was a finalist, I think Ron Dane was, was the winner of the Wisconsin running back. Nobody thought Michael was going to win and Michael didn't think he was going to win, <laughs> but man was, you know, he just, he loved it and it turned out to be a precursor because a year later he was in New York for the NFL draft as as the number one pick but no it's it's an indelible experience that they'll <clears throat> that they'll always remember whether they got the hardware or not yeah and you're probably right too that our knowledge of relationship with Hendon Hooker <laughs> probably played into sure. wanting a little bit better for him right just because uh, you know, he had such a, an odd ending to his time at Virginia Tech but he mm-hmm. had, had showed so much promise um, and then there's a great example of a kid who it was not working out for in Blacksburg and boy did it work out for him in Knoxville well I'm glad it worked out for us to get together and podcast again we're going to try to get back on a weekly schedule now that basketball is fully up and running we'll have plenty to talk about with bowl games and college football playoffs although it doesn't involve any of our locals here thank you for listening you can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite pods and please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the Times Dispatch. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. Today's show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer and yours truly. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next week.